Hello, and welcome to Transfusion's monthly podcast. I'm your host, Yara Park. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with the authors of the article, Patient Perspectives on Intraoperative Blood Transfusion, a Qualitative Interview Study with Perioperative Patients. Welcome, Drs. Tori Lennett and Guillaume Martel. Thank you both for joining us. Dr. Lennett, would you please introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. Uh, my name is Tori. I'm one of the general surgery residents at the University of Ottawa. I um, completed this project as part of my master's in clinical epidemiology, so I'm very excited to be here, and thanks for having us. And Dr. Martel, could you introduce yourself, please? Thank you for having us, uh, Guillaume Martel. I'm a uh, HPB, a pedobiliary surgeon, and acute care surgeon at the Ottawa Hospital, University of Ottawa also a clinical epidemiologist and trialist at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute. And uh, much of my research program focuses on perioperative medicine and perioperative transfusions. So we're very excited to be here to talk about the paper. Well, thank you both so much. So can you start by summarizing your study for our listeners? Sure. Um, So essentially, uh, this came about as part of a broader research program, like Dr. Martel was saying, looking at Uh, several aspects related to specifically intraoperative transfusions. So these are referring to transfusions that are given to patients undergoing surgery uh, in the operating room. And so we realized that we didn't really have a lot of information about patient perspectives about these transfusions. So when we think about how we get consent for these blood transfusions that we give while they're under general anesthesia in the operating room, you know, often the conversation is a little bit brief and very superficial. And we say, you know, would you accept a blood transfusion in the OR? They say yes. And that's the end of it. But we don't really think much more about it. And like I said, it's these decisions are made on their behalf by the the surgical team. So we wanted to understand um, patient perspectives about intraoperative blood transfusions with the goal of, you know, just understanding their perspectives, um, their opinions, and whether or not they care about intraoperative transfusions and um, how we can maybe incorporate their opinions or perspectives into these decisions that are made on their behalf in the operating room. So um, that was kind of the, the broad. A little bit uh, more broadly, you know, we, we've done a lot of work to try to understand the process of intraoperative transfusion. We, I've, I mean, we've always felt that this is a really unexplored area of perioperative medicine. We, we spent a lot of time, you know, as surgeons, anesthesiologists, et cetera, crafting the way surgery is done and keeping patients safe. But there's always been this, um, you know, unexplored area regarding why transfusions are given, when they're given, in what context, uh, by whom. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of the research we've done recently has been to try to understand that process. And one of the branches that was unexplored is is the patient perspective. And to a certain degree, that's always been a little bit of a, a strange thing to do because it's understood that patients don't really have much of a say when they're asleep under general anesthesia. But just like when patients come in for, say, cancer surgery, there's a lot of you know, preoperative discussion that takes place about what they want, what they prefer, what they would accept, what they would not accept, uh, what their goals are. We felt that that should also be explored perhaps with respect to the decision of transfusion, which is ultimately, you know, a surrogate uh, or proxy, if you wish, to to the surgical team and anesthesio- uh, anesthesiology team. And so that that's kind of where we were coming from. So what 
led you to start the study? So this is great background on why you were thinking about it, but what actually got you to do the study? It's a little bit of what we just said, but to, to perhaps deepen a bit, to, to explore this a bit further, um, you know, we we are interested in general to improve the way the process is rendered in the operating room. And we, we know there's a lot of variability with respect to how many units of red cells patients will get from one hospital to another, from one practitioner to another. Uh, and that variability is something that we were a little bit bothered by and an and area that we, we feel we can improve. And, you know, in, in implementation medicine and in health services research, this area of unexplained variability uh, there's always this saying, if you can't explain variability on the basis of patient preferences or patient differences in terms of case mix, um, then that variability shouldn't be there. And the the key phrase there being patient preference. And so that got us thinking about, you know, is there such a thing as patient preference in, in the context of red cell transfusion in the operating room? Uh, and we sort of went back and started thinking about how the process of, of red cell decision making takes place, uh, trying to break down the, the process from, from A to Z. And, uh, you know, a lot of it has to do with providers. A lot of it has to do with uh, training, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a whole other avenue of research. But uh, the piece about patient preference was really unexplored. And in the literature, there's, there's hardly anything we look for you know, systematic reviews and other such papers. And it's not really something that people have looked at. And we felt that this may become an important um, component of either future research or perhaps incorporation into clinical trials. And we know that uh, patient perspectives becomes quite important as we as we design future studies. And it's, it's certainly a very modern uh, thing to do. So we, we want it to be at the forefront of that. So when you did these patient interviews, what were some overarching themes you found from patients? Yeah, I can uh, take this one. So we kind of uh, came up with several main things. So essentially, um, we connected these interviews with patients uh, both before and after surgery. So for the preoperative patients, we really chose um, patients who were undergoing surgeries that had at least a moderate chance of requiring a transfusion, so bigger surgeries. And then for the postoperative patients, we really focused on those who either had some element of postoperative anemia or who had actually received a transfusion in the operating room because these were kind of felt to be the patients that would have the most to say about transfusion. Um, so I can go through briefly some uh, major themes. I think one of them that was uh, very important kind of, so when you talk to physicians about patient perspectives about intraoperative transfusion, it's actually not clear if patients actually care about the transfusions that they're getting in the OR. And certainly there was a lot of variability in the patients I spoke to. Some of them said, you know, I trust the medical team to make those decisions. So there was a lot of deferring to medical expertise, which I think we expected. Um, but there were a lot of patients who said, you know what, I, I would want my perspectives um, considered when these decisions are being made on my behalf, especially those who had maybe a bit more of a, a healthcare background or who had more strong feelings about perioperative transfusion. They seem to kind of want their voices heard. So uh, I think, you know, the willingness to be involved in those decisions um, or the willingness to discuss preoperative transfusion ahead of time so that their opinions can be incorporated. That was a major theme as, as well as I think trust in the surgical team and kind of trust in 
medical judgment and, and patients often cited their trust in the healthcare system to make those decisions on their behalf. Although again, there, there was a lot of variability in, in the patient opinions that I spoke to. So I don't think we've ever talked about a qualitative research project on this podcast before. And in the paper, you make a point that this is qualitative, not quantitative research. How do you design a qualitative project and how is it different from a quantitative project? I think that's a very important question. And uh, I think let me start by actually thanking the journal for for considering our paper because and ultimately accepting it because it's it's a very interesting process to go through qualitative research where you you don't get quite the same type of peer review you normally would uh, and you you end up getting very similar questions come back over and over that typically have to do with you know the, the size of the sample the number of patients or subjects you've decided to, to, to interview, et cetera, et cetera. I think the first thing to really understand about qualitative research, at least the perspective we took here, is that this is largely an exploratory type of analysis. The, the goal of the uh, qualitative research as we designed it is really to generate themes that can then be incorporated into future research, for instance. Um, that's the, the, the goal of purposive sampling as, as we set it up. Um, it, it's not so much to report quantitative uh, parameters or analyses or data, uh, you know, in terms of frequency of themes or frequency of concepts. It's really more to let these th- themes emerge, identify them as individual themes, and, and report them as such, not so much to quantify uh, quantify them. And and that then can lead to future research where you can incorporate themes in, in whatever way you want, perhaps in interventions, et cetera, et cetera. But really the purpose of this type of qualitative research was to let the themes emerge organically, so to speak, uh, without concerns over, you know, power, number of patients, as long as you have a reasonable sense that, that themes have fully emerged. And, and maybe Tori can expand on that. Uh, yeah, so we talked, you know, a little bit per- about proposal sampling, which essentially, you know, I certainly wasn't familiar with before I started doing um, more qu- quantitative methods or qualitative methods papers. Um, but essentially, like I talked about, you know, proposal sampling is is where you the in- investigators, you know, look for specific criteria and then specifically select specific individuals um, to. Uh, that that are felt to be most knowledgeable about the research topic with the goal of elucidating those themes and and their perspectives. And then, you know, we touched a little bit about power and sample size. You know, it is a lot different in qualitative research where we talk a lot about thematic saturation, and that's really the point in qualitative research where collecting more data or more participants um, no longer results in any new themes coming up. So essentially, as you're going through your interview transcripts, you're still you're identifying the same things over and over, uh, sorry, the same themes, sorry. And so that determines your sample size, because if you're not getting any more themes, then essentially that's your sign that you've collected enough data to adequately understand the topic. And, and that's your sign that it's time to move on to the analysis phase. So it's, it's very different than you know, quantitative research where you're getting your sample size a priori and you have your power calculations, et cetera. Um, so it's just a bit of a, a different setup and different concepts to understand. There's lots of interventions that providers can speak to patients about. There's almost endless risk benefit calculations. So what elements of the procedure other than transfusion are such nuanced informed consent discussions desirable, like certain medications, vent settings, lab draws, positioning, 
IV contrast, those types of things. What other areas besides transfusion really need this kind of nuanced consenting? Yeah, that, that's a really great question. Um, and I, I've actually reflected on this because to a certain degree, we're sort of nitpicking on, on one component or potential component of an operation. And, and to a certain degree, we've chosen to do so because, you know, we have an interest in, in the field. And, but, but also because we have, as I alluded to earlier, we have data showing that there's a tremendous amount of variability in the field. And so if you then make the sort of mental leap to understand that transfusions have an impact on patients, they have potential for harm, they have the potential for good. Uh, we feel that this is something that has a lot of influence on patient outcomes. And, uh, and it, you know, there's other issues with respect to resources and costs, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but that, that's why we felt this was important. Now, you know, in surgery, you could argue that this is true for lots of other features of an operation. Uh, and to a certain degree, many of the large moving parts of a given operation are discussed with patients. Um, you know, I do sort of complex pancreatic and liver surgery in my, my routine practice. And uh, we do discuss a lot of the details of the operations with patients. You know, sometimes we have to go into, okay, are we going to give you chemotherapy before your pancreatic cancer surgery, or are we going to go straight to the operating room? If we do go to the operating room, there is a chance you may need, you know, part of your portal vein removed. And what does that entail? And what's the risk associated with that? And, you know, we get into a great level of detail about a lot of these things, at least, um, you know, perhaps in the more modern way of practicing, if I'm allowed to say that, um, much less perhaps uh, patriarchal than we used to be and, and much more into a shared decision-making model with patients, which I think is important. So this kind of fits into that, that sort of view of the world. And I would argue that any of the major steps of a given operation can and should be discussed with patients, particularly where they are likely to have an influence on ultimately their outcomes. Uh, and that can be cancer outcomes, or that can be, uh, you know, general perioperative outcomes where there's a a significant risk for harm, or there's a significant risk for even mortality, for instance. Uh, and I think a lot of us try to do that. And I think this fits within that, that global perspective. Some study subjects wanted more information, while most were content with the level of information provided. What strategies can providers use to help understand the level of detail a patient desires for informed consent for perioperative transfusion? Are there any clues out there when you meet with a patient? Yeah, I'd say the patients who had more of an opinion about transfusion tended to be the ones with a little bit of a higher education level or familiarity with the healthcare system. Uh, I think a good strategy may be to ask them, you know, what do you know about blood transfusion, just to have a sense of their underlying knowledge, if they've had a previous experience with blood transfusions, and then just ask them, you know, sometimes it say something like, you know, sometimes patients having your kind of surgery require transfusions in the operating room. Um, 
and these are broadly the risks and then, you know, ask them, do you, are you interested in hearing more or, you know, is there anything you're particularly worried about? So I found that just by asking them, like, you know, what, what's your, what is your knowledge of transfusions and and are you, are you particularly worried about them? And do you want more information? That's a good way to screen for the subset of patients that may want to have a more detailed discussion about transfusion and there may be a role for incorporating their perspectives into, into those decisions that are made on their behalf uh, during their surgeries. So since you've done this study and seen the results, has it changed the way the two of you consent your patients? No, that's a really great question. I do, I do spend a little bit more time. Um, I think the biggest challenge, uh, as you probably know full well, is that clinicians have a you know very limited amount of time. Um, time is always the, the the biggest challenge, and so I think if you've already spent a fair amount of time discussing. A given operation, and then I think traditionally the transfusion consent has been a bit of an afterthought. Um, I, I do spend a little bit of time on it now, uh, a little bit like Dr. Lennon has alluded to, by trying to gauge the degree of interest or, or information that the patient wants to have. But I think the other really sort of important point to make here is that in 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 large part you know, the, the surgeon will gather consent, uh, at least at our institution. I suspect that's the case in many places. And uh, then when it comes down to actually doing the deed, so to speak, you know, the anesthesiologist in many places will manage the transfusions, uh, at least hang the units, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a bit of a disconnect there. And this is uh, an air of area of research that we're, we're actively engaging in, trying to define the professional roles, so to speak. Uh, and it, it's pretty fascinating um, how that's, that's sort of evolving. Um, maybe Tori wants to expand a little bit because uh, that's one of our areas as well. Yeah, no, it was interesting because as part of my master's, I also spoke to anesthesiologists and surgeons about, you know, really on a granular level, how are these intraoperative red cell transfusion decisions made? And, and there was a lot of variability, like talking to American surgeons versus Canadian uh, surgeons and anesthesiologists. You know, in Canada, really, it is, um, I think, primarily an anesthesia-led decision, whereas in the States, I think it's, you know, either a, a decision that's initiated by the surgeon or, or at least a joint decision. And then when you ask them, you know, do you think that there's a role for patient preference in that decision, you really get a mixed a mixed response as well. So, you know, whether or not cl- clinicians actually think that patient perspective should be incorporated into the decision is, is not a given, right? Um, but uh, yeah, so certainly, so let's say you have a patient who says, you know, I'd accept a transfusion if it was really necessary, I'd rather avoid it if, if at all possible. So let's say, you know, you're the surgeon, you're getting that feedback from the patient during your preoperative consent discussion, and then... It's, at least in Canada, it's really an anesthesia-led decision. So you'd then have to find a way to let the anesthesiologist know about that preference so that they could incorporate into the operating room. So it's not all that to say is it's not a straightforward uh, decision. And then the actual way and who's making that ultimate call to initiate a transfusion is also not always straightforward. Um, and so how to how on a on a practical level to incorporate patient perspectives or, or opinions into those decisions that are made uh, is not is not straightforward, to say the least. I think those are some excellent points about the time when you were talking about having to talk about potentially removing someone's portal vein and whether or not you're going to give them chemo and then to have to launch into a thing about transfusion. That's a lot for a patient to take in and a lot for a surgeon to spend time doing. When I think about consenting patients, 
I think about the lectures I give to my residents about transfusion, adverse reactions of transfusions, it's over an hour long. I clearly can't spend that much time with my patients doing that type of thing. So it's a hard line to walk, I think, for sure. Absolutely. And I think that's true for, for all consent discussions in medicine, but this is uh, sort of taking a very complex topic and trying to make it digestible for folks. Um, you know, uh, it, it's like anything else in medicine. I think it's doable, but it's, it's a question of developing a habit and a bit of a, a spiel to use and um, that, that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, I, I think to, to a certain degree, this has to do with culture. And, and currently, I would argue the culture is such that we don't really consider this to be major aspect of consenting. And I, I kind of speak from a personal belief here rather than data, but uh, that that's sort of my viewpoint on this. Um, it, it's not considered as important as perhaps it should be. Yeah. And another um, kind of main finding of the paper was that we looked at transfusions in specifically in the intraoperative context, but there's a lot of literature out there looking at patient perspectives uh, about transfusion in the non-operative context. And it does seem that in those papers that patients were more concerned about transfusion and more worried about the side effects. Whereas when I was interviewing patients, you know, whether patients wanted to be involved or not in those decisions, they still felt that overall the risks associated with transfusion were quite low. And so we hypothesized that one of those, maybe one of the reasons why patients aren't as worried about the side effects of transfusion in the operative setting compared to the non operative setting was that they're, you know, facing a major surgical intervention that has its own risks and are likely, you know, those risks are more probable than the risks associated with the transfusion. Um, and so it seems, certainly seems that in the intraoperative context, the risk of transfusion kind of falls by the wayside. And so that may be why patients are less uh, worried about them and also maybe why physicians don't spend as much time talking about them because, you know, there's so many other risks to discuss as well. Those are really excellent points. You mentioned that many people were not aware that they were transfused in the past, which was surprising given the fact that all Canadian patients get a letter if they're transfused. So for us non-Canadians, can you tell us about this letter that Canadians get when they get a transfusion? What does it say? Uh, you want to take that, Tori? I think you know a bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, so there certainly, um, I think most physicians will disclose that they've received a transfusion in the post-operative period while the patient's in hospital. But from my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Martel, but the Canadian Blood Services actually sends patients a letter uh, saying, you know, you've received a unit of blood during your hospitalization, just, I think, informing them. I, I don't I don't think there's any more detail than that. It's just kind of a, a disclosure letter. But despite that, a lot of patients still didn't know about it. And they'd say, oh, yeah, I received a transfusion. And, you know, and I'm looking at their operative record. And I see that they've received, you know, three transfusions in the OR, and, and they had no idea. So that was a very surprising to me that number one, it wasn't clearly disclosed by the surgical team in hospital. And then number two, that maybe they didn't see the letter or uh, didn't understand it. And yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I apologies to the good people at the Canadian Blood Services if I'm misrepresenting that letter. But uh, my understanding is that this this letter kind of shows up, uh, you know, a couple of weeks or months down the road, and it's for exposure to any blood product, including albumin. Um, and for some patients, that, that comes as a total surprise. Um, and I think that's uh, very much on us as clinicians to 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 be certain that they they are informed, particularly for red cells or, or other major blood products. Um, and um, yeah, it goes to show, I think that to a certain degree, it, it, it highlights the finding of the study with respect to, to their perspectives on transfusions that 
in the big picture of sometimes a, a fairly major operation, it, it does seem that for a proportion of patients, the issue of transfusion kind of seems like a drop in the bucket, uh, not, not to use a bad pun, but it's, uh, yeah. I think it's fascinating. And I guess for a lot of patients, if you get the only transfusion you get, you're asleep in the OR, you wouldn't know unless someone told you about it. So I could see how it could happen. But if they get a letter, you'd think they would know. Yeah, no, and at that point, they definitely know. Um, and, and some are you know, totally okay with it, and some are surprised, and they kind of bring the letter back to the office after in the follow-up visit, and they say, oh, I, I don't really understand what that is. Can you explain it to me? And that, 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 that brings up the discussion sometimes. I have to say most patients are totally fine with it at that point, but uh, uh, sometimes it is a complete surprise, and, and especially the albumin part, which I think uh, we're much, much less likely to bring up in conversation than red cells, right? Yeah, that's very interesting. They send the letter even for albumin. Yeah. Acknowledging the study was performed in Canada, and the average American reads at a fifth grade level, how do we ensure patients with lower reading and or health literacy are able to make the best decisions without being overwhelmed? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, it's a very important question. And I think it's, uh, it, it, it goes to the whole process of consent for any medical intervention, really. Um, I, I think we all know as health practitioners that the overwhelming majority of the information we provide to patients in in stressful uh, situations, you know, say cancer discussions, etc. I suspect the overwhelming majority of the information we relate to patient is not completely understood or incorrectly understood, etc. Uh, I don't think transfusion is all that different in that in that perspective, um, and so. I think we have to strive to use relatively simple, non-technical language. Uh, we have to speak in a sort of relatable way to patients, uh, and and some of us do do it better, and some of don't not don't do it quite well. And so that's uh, that's part of the challenge and art of medicine. I don't think transfusion is any different in that respect, but it it is it is part of the challenge, no doubt about it. Yeah, and, and certainly talking to patients about their recollection of their preoperative blood consent discussion. You know, we, we tried to interview people, the postoperative patients at least, um, within six weeks of their surgery to mitigate recall bias. But, you know, the recall of specific risks or benefits that were discussed with them about transfusion was almost none. Like, number one, a lot of patients didn't even remember having that discussion, even though in our institution, at least, there's a specific consent form for uh, blood products that they have to sign separate from the surgical consent. Um, so some patients didn't even remember talking about blood at all. And, and and those who did, you know, it was very rare that someone could tell me a specific risk or benefit that was discussed with them. So I think there's certainly signs that maybe we could be improving on the way that we talk to patients about blood products. What surprised you most about this study and its findings? Uh, I, I think for me, it was the, the degree to which patients were uh, completely fine with accepting, you know, the, 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 the physician judgment. Like, I, I think we're all aware that we live sort of an era right now where there's a lot of questioning about, you know, science and physician authority, et cetera, et cetera. But when it boiled down to it, when patients signed up for surgery, and this wasn't universal in the sample, of course, but when, when patients signed up for surgery, they trusted the team. Um, they trusted 
their surgeon, but also the, tree, the team more broadly. And they, they were accepting that there were certain risks and they were accepting that the group of professionals would work to, to give them the best possible outcome. Um, and I, I thought that was, that was a little bit surprising to me. I was expecting a little bit more, uh, I guess, pushback or reticence on the part of patients to, to just accept transfusions for what they are given you know, all the history behind uh, transfusions, um, you know, the, the, the scandals, particularly in Canada in the past, et cetera. And so that, that was a pretty interesting, uh, pretty inter- interesting finding. Yeah. And, and patients specifically reference the quality of their relationship with their surgeon as, you know, a, a reason why they're willing to, de- to delegate those transfusion decisions. So patients would say, you know, because I trusted my surgeon, I was very happy to let them make the decision that they thought was in my best interest. Uh, or as conversely, patients express that, you know, having a poor relationship with their surgeon may prompt them to question those decisions a little bit more um, and, and may want to kind of have their voice or their opinion heard a little bit more strongly uh, than if they had a, a good pre-existing relationship with their surgeon. I should I should probably further qualify that Part of the reason why I was surprised was because I, I think we sometimes get more pushback on transfusions uh, when in, we're in the post-operative setting. In fact, you know, at our place, we'll often re-consent patients for that. And to a certain degree, patients are much more likely to sort of question, oh, do I really need this, uh, et cetera, et cetera, in the post-operative setting. Whereas it's almost like when they sign up for surgery, it's kind of like going on an airplane. You're you kind of have to relinquish control to a certain degree, and and I, my understanding is that patients kind of get that. It's uh, it's pretty interesting dichotomy actually. I like the airplane analogy. That is very much what it's like, isn't it? That's how I feel when I go on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel too. So, last question: What's next for your team? Oh, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? So um, I think broadly speaking, I mean, Tori can jump in at any point, but broadly speaking, um, this particular question fits into the more broader question about how do we transfuse in the operating room? And so we've done work on uh, surgeon and anesthesiologist interviews. Uh, That work is under peer review right now. So we're looking at all the sort of behavioral, social, peer connections that affect the transfusion decision-making process. Um, And then secondary to that, we've then generated sort of a Delphi consensus process to establish um, best practice, so to speak, uh, surrounding intraoperative transfusion decision-making. Ultimately, we're hoping to make this into an intervention and to and to trial it, and so that's uh, further down the road. But uh, those are sort of the broad themes we're working on. Tori, you want to jump in? I, I think there's kind of a lot more we can unpack there. But yeah, I mean, I could go on for for hours about this. But you know, I think just getting back to the variability, like it was pretty shocking to me. Like there was a good paper um, by Dr. Helly's group out of Toronto that looked at, you know, the same patient having the same surgery at two different hospitals, just within Ontario alone. So one province in Canada had a 30% difference in their odds of transfusion, just based on who's doing the surgery or who, or who their anesthesiologist is and what's what hospital they're having 
the surgery at. So there's a ton of variability. And I don't think that's often recognized in the OR by the average surgeon who may not be or may not have a specific interest in transfusion. Um, but there is a huge amount of variability in how and, and when patients are transfused in the operating room. And I think really the overarching goal of, of my thesis and the and future our future research endeavors will be to address this variability. And it's not necessarily to decrease the amount of transfusion, although, you know, like we talked about, there's that whole transfusions aren't benign and there's societal and environmental costs to transfusion, but really making sure that the transfusions we're giving are appropriate. Um, so appropriateness rather than simply reduction in transfusion um, and trying to understand the, that un, unexplained or unnecessary vari- variability in transfusion to try and, and make sure that we're, we're doing the best um, or giving our patients the best possible care. Yeah, this is part of our broader sort of perioperative blood management or patient blood management program. Uh, and th- this is really reflecting an effort to focus a little bit on the intraoperative pillar, uh, which has really kind of been a black box over the years, right? We have a lot of data about preoperative interventions to optimize patients. And, you know, you could argue about the data back and forth with iron, et cetera, um, optimization of hemoglobin leading into surgery. You can talk about all these other things that have been tested over the years. And then we have data about postoperative interventions. You know, we know about hemoglobin triggers and targets. We know about all kinds of other ways to uh, restrict blood utilization, et cetera. But there's not a lot of work that's gone in in the operating room, Uh, perhaps a bit more in cardiac and orthopedics. But even then, I would argue that that we have a lot of room and a lot of work to do. And this is part of our effort to try to contribute something. And that's our show. Thank you to Dr. Lennett and Dr. Martell for joining us for a really fascinating discussion. This has been Yara Park for Transfusions Monthly Podcast. See you next time. (music) 